But I suspect that the most upsetting thing of all about this passage is the overall picture that it paints. That husbands have a power that their wives do not. And it's that difference in power that is the most vexing thing about this passage. And it makes us the hardest thing about this passage to hear. Uh, Lindsay reminded us last week that our culture has a sensitive antenna towards injustice, a real suspicion of power and how it is used and how it is often misused. And reading 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 1 to 7, our antenna is most definitely up and our suspicions are most definitely aroused. And none of us have any shortage of real life examples to justify a suspicious mind towards power and the powerful. And so it is disturbing to come to the Bible and find that the Bible does not share our suspicion towards power. The Bible does not share our suspicion towards power. The Bible is very happy to talk positively about power. Just flip one page back, just flip back to 1 Peter chapter 2 that Rosemary reminded us of, the context of this passage that Lindsay brought to us last week. Peter there was very happy to speak positively about the power of human authorities in chapter 2 verse 13, uh, that we Christians ought to submit and obey our government, even if that government is the despotic Roman Empire that was no friend of Christianity and occasionally broke out in fierce persecution against it. And Peter was also very happy to talk about the power of human masters in chapter 2 verse 18. And not just the good and the considerate ones, but even the harsh ones. And likewise here, Peter is very happy to talk about the power of a husband. And not just the good and godly believing kind of husband, but the unbelieving kind as well. But why is that? Why does the Bible speak so positively about power? And why is our world so suspicious about power? Because it will be very hard to understand and even harder to accept this passage unless we can answer that question. There must be a pretty big difference in, in one of the core assumptions of our Western world today and in, between what God teaches for us to have two such very different attitudes towards power. And it turns out that there is. You see, now our world today... People are fundamentally seen as good. People are are fundamentally seen as basically good and and fine and and fair and and decent. And what leads to injustice in our world, what leads to evil behaviour in our world, are the differences in power between us. Uh, The the systemic, the, the structures of our societies that give some people more power than others which leads to abuse, it leads to corruption, it leads to the strong domineering, the weak. Uh, People aren't to blame, people aren't the problem, it's power that is the problem. And so the solution we're so often told in our world today is we need to reallocate power, we need to redistribute the resources, we need to re-educate people, we need to restructure society, we need to change the institutions and the mechanisms of power, particularly the economic and the political ones. And we need to preference the powerless as we do that. And then, if we do that, then the the basic goodness of humanity, it'll come out once again and we'll have a much fairer, a much more equal, a much uh, better world. Uh, People are good. It's power that is evil. It's power that is to blame. 
But God actually has a very different view of the problem and therefore a very different view of the solution. Uh, God's Word says that actually it's the other way around. Uh, It's not power that is the problem, it's people that are the problem. It's sin which is the problem. It's the sin that lives in each one of our hearts that causes the problems of our world. It's that rejection of God that every human being has done that leads to all wicked behaviour, all the selfishness and injustices of our world today. It begins, the Word of God says, in the sinful human heart which says, there is no God here but me. People, the Bible says, are bad. They are evil. And power, in and of itself, well, it's fine. It's, it's not the problem. You know, people say power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. No, it doesn't. We worship the God of all power. Has he somehow been corrupted by that power? And the Lord Jesus Christ, he's been given by his Father all power and authority. Has that somehow corrupted him? Some people would look at a passage like this and say that patriarchy is the problem. But no, it isn't. God is the great Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Father from whom all fatherhood is named. Fatherhood is not the problem. There's nothing wrong with power, the Bible says. The only problem with power is when it gets into the hands of a sinful human being which unfortunately is all the time. And so I can understand the suspicion towards power and towards powerful people. But you won't solve the problem by rearranging who has power in a society because that's just to to transfer the power from one sinful human being and put it into the hands of another sinful human being. If you want to deal with the problems of this world, the Bible says... If you want to deal with injustice, if you want to deal with inequality, then you have to deal with the real problem. And that's not power, that's sin. And so how do you deal with the problem of sin? Well, the only way is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Only by kneeling at the cross and accepting his diagnosis of the problem, the problem of our sinful hearts, can we find forgiveness. And so come with me to 2 verse 21, 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 21, where Peter reminded us of this. Verse 21, to this you are called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. See, how did Jesus save us from sin? And the answer is by not using his power, by not retaliating, but by not threatening by not fighting back with the power that he very clearly had. When they came to arrest him, he said in Matthew 26, do you not know that that the Father will give me 12 legions of angels if I do not but ask? Jesus understood power. But more importantly, Jesus understood the power of not using power. 
of not using the power that he had. And the great saving work of Jesus was an act of Jesus not using his power, even though he could have. It was the act of handing himself over to the power of the mob, to the unjust judges, to the jealous religious leaders. Jesus knew how fearful it was to be handed over to the power of sinful men. And yet he did it because he trusted his father. And he submitted himself to his father's power. And so he did not use his own power. Jesus knows the power of of weakness and submission and suffering. And that's how any of us are saved. We are only saved because Jesus submitted himself to the will of sinful men and to the will of his father and bore our sin in his body on the cross. And that's how you deal with sin. But notice, along the way, Christ also sets an example for us that we might follow. An example that Lindsay shared with us last week for how to submit to the power of human authorities, governments and masters. Jesus was the example, and the example was godly submission. Following Jesus in living the spirit-filled life of holiness. That means that we choose not to rebel, not to fight back, even when we do have the power to do so. To know the power of not using the power that we have and instead entrusting ourselves to God who judges justly. When it comes to power, Jesus Christ is our example of how to use it. And so often his answer is, don't. Instead, submit. Instead, as he began back in chapter 2, verse 12, live such good lives amongst the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. And so with all of that in mind, so begins Peter's words to wives and to husbands. And the key to understanding this passage that we read is to understand that little phrase that comes up in verse 1 and in verse 7. In the same way. In the same way as Jesus. Verse 1, in the same way as Jesus, Peter invites wives to know the power of not using their power. To know the power of submission. And in the same way, verse 7, as Jesus, Peter invites husbands to know the power of not using their power. And of instead following the example of Jesus. And there is a bit of an outline that's come up on the, on the screen behind me, just to let you know some of the, the words that uh, Peter has. And the first word for wives here is the word submission. Uh, the invitation to a wife not to use her power to rebel and to fight and to rage against the authority that God gives her husband. Now, submission, it just means the acknowledging of the authority of someone else and gladly respecting it, being willfully subjected to it. And submission is not a dirty word in the Bible, chiefly because it's at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is someone who submits, who acknowledges the authority of God and willingly subjects themselves to it. A Christian is someone who follows Jesus by submitting to Jesus, uh, recognising his authority and, and obeying his teaching. 
And so Christians believe in submission in all sorts of different contexts, all sorts of different relationships as we see proper. We acknowledge the different responsibilities and therefore the different authority that is given to different people. And the Bible does say that God has given a particular responsibility and therefore a particular authority to a husband in marriage and then invites wives to submit to that in the same way as Jesus. Now, it's not an authority that is given to a husband that he might oppress or coerce or manipulate people in his family. It's not an authority that is given to husbands that they might always get their way in all things. Instead, it's an authority to be exercised like Jesus, exercised in selflessness and sacrificial love, preferencing the needs of others over his own. And it's the exercise of that kind of authority in marriage which wives are called to submit themselves to. Peter calls all wives to gladly place themselves under the authority that God has given to their husbands for their good and that they do that in the same way as Jesus. But Peter also has a particular situation in mind which leads to the second word to wives, the word speech. Have a look at verse 1 again, read it carefully. Verse 1, wives in the same way submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word... They may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Peter has in mind some wives in particular, uh, those who are followers of Jesus but find themselves for whatever reason uh, married to someone who is not a follower of Jesus. And he urges wives in that situation, uh, in particular to to purity and towards a, a reverence for God, so that their husbands might notice their behaviour. Now, purity and and reverence for God is something that is already encouraged everyone uh, to seek in this letter. But what's most interesting about this is the way that Peter speaks of their behaviour, winning their husbands without words, without speech, without using the power of words. For there is a kind of power to words, isn't there? There is a, a power to speech, And even when you find yourself in a weaker position, there's always a way of using the power of words to fight back. And in the Bible, there are several times, for example, in the book of Proverbs, where the power of a wife's word is highlighted. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 9, better to live on the corner of a roof than share a house with a nagging wife. There's a power to words, says the Bible. But Peter instead invites wives to win over their unbelieving husbands, not by using the power of their words, but instead through holy living, recognising the power but not using it. Now, there's a good argument to be made here that these husbands that Peter imagines here have already heard the gospel since they're described as not believing the word. But if they haven't yet heard the gospel, well, at some point they will need to hear it. That will be necessary. But we mustn't water down the fact that Peter claims here that the wife's wordless conduct could win him over. Often it can be tempting for a wife to fall into a kind of nagging repetitiveness about Christianity simply because actually they care so much for their spouse and and want them to come to know the Lord Jesus. And yet so often that is counterproductive and rather than being winsome, it can be alienating. 
And Peter wants to commend to wives the winsomeness of wordless witness and to demonstrate your loyalty to Christ by the purity and reverence of your lives to such an extent that the unbeliever will notice. And despite this being a word to wives, I do wonder whether it has some application to husbands also who might find themselves married to an unbelieving wife. Or perhaps even to a parent who lives with an unbelieving child or maybe even to someone living with an unbelieving housemate. There can be a time to remain silent and instead to seek to win someone with the power of holy living. And all this leads on to the third word that God has here for wives. And this word is a word about beauty. And once more, Peter invites wives not to use the power of beauty. Not to use the power of outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewellery or, or fine clothes, because there is a power to beauty, is there not? There is a power to outward appearance. Our world is obsessed with beauty. It's, our world is obsessed with the beautiful woman. Uh, the beauty of, of women has a kind of a captivating power over our culture today in, in, in what a woman wears and the way that she dresses or so often these days the way she undresses. And instead, verse 4, Peter says that there is a, a beauty of the Christian wife uh, that is the beauty that comes from her inner self, uh, the unfading beauty, uh, says Peter, of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. And once again is the invitation to forgo the power that you might have in favour of something much greater, of much greater worth in God's sight. Now Peter here is not placing a ban, I think, on you know, certain hairstyles or even on jewellery purchases, uh, or else I would have to return the ring that I bought for Bond's birthday. But instead, Peter is saying that our conception of beauty shouldn't rest on such things. He's reminding us once again of what he taught us through the prophet Samuel. But you, you remember the time when Israel was looking for a new king to replace Saul. And God said that, you know, the people, they're the ones who look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That's what he cares about. And Peter here is contrasting exterior beauty with inward beauty. And he's reminding us that inward beauty is what matters most to God. And therefore, it's what should matter most to us. Now, I think that's a really important thing for us to understand. That we might understand beauty as the Lord sees it. And it's important for us to be reminded of this, you know, whether we're married or whether we're not, whoever we might be. It speaks to how we see ourselves as to whether or not we consider ourselves to be beautiful. What we look for what we care about inside ourselves. But it also speaks to how we think of other people as well, what we look for in them. It, it speaks to how we see them, perhaps whether or not we will treat them with equal kindness, whether or not they're someone who we consider attractive or whether they're someone who is unappealing to us. It speaks, dear Uni Church, to what you look for in a future wife or indeed a future husband. It speaks as well, I think, to what we teach children in our lives, what we will tell them about beauty and what we reinforce by uh, the comments that we make. And I think there is a very deep challenge for us here because of just how different, how opposite is, 
it is to our world's view of beauty. Our world is captivated by the the exterior, the outwardly beautiful. But God reminds us here that no matter how glamorous or handsome you are now, it is but temporary. But there is a beauty that is unfading. And it's inside a person. And we should care about that as much as God does. Peter even goes further with this because he wants us to appreciate that submissiveness itself is beautiful. A submission flows out of what he calls a, a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, I don't mean that, I don't think that he means there that he's talking about being silent. I don't think he is saying here that a woman should be seen and not heard. He's instead, he's talking about the spirit of a woman who, that seeks for peace and contentment and a calm trust in God. It's the spirit that wants to deal carefully and graciously with others and with especially with her husband. A gentle and quiet spirit describes the inner workings of respect and supportiveness and love that a woman has. And sometimes that will be seen in a, in a, a woman who is a, a shyer and more introverted personality. And sometimes that will be seen in a woman who is a more gregarious and extroverted personality. But it is always seen by God and valued by Him. And to encourage wives to show it, Peter reminds us, of the female saints of old. And this is where Peter connects submissiveness with beauty most explicitly because he says that the holy women of the past used to adorn themselves with submission. And that same word adornment there in verse is the same as the word adornment in verse 3. By being submissive to their husband, they beautify themselves, he says here in verse 5. In the sight of their husbands, perhaps, yes, but most certainly in the sight of their God. And in particular, Peter cites the example of Sarah, who was married to Abraham. Now, the fact that she calls him Lord, I do not think is uh, to mean that she saw herself as a slave or a servant or something like that. Uh, It does not imply that she expected to be dominated or uh, disrespected by him. It's simply offered here as evidence of her gentle and quiet spirit that made her beautiful. She honoured his God-given authority as her husband. But I do think that Sarah is a very interesting example for Peter to choose because Abraham is a very long way from being a model husband. In fact, the truth is, I think Abraham is probably the worst husband in all of the Bible. And if you know your Bible well, then you know that he faces some pretty serious competition for that title. Sarah's obedient submission carried risks because her husband was a sinner and when she married him he became a sinner with power over her and the same thing could be said of all submission in marriage it's not without risks and Sarah's marriage to Abraham really embodies that reality Uh, now don't I don't conclude from this that a wife is called on to submit to her husband at at any risk or at any cost. I don't think there's any evidence that Peter is trying to make that case. I presume there are situations that we could talk about where a wife should be discouraged from submitting to her husband. And I know I want to encourage a husband to demand submission, as we will soon see. And yet Peter's example is nevertheless quite provocative. There is a risk in submission. Submitting in marriage does have a cost. 
And those that want to be considered the daughters of Sarah will model their submission on her, her courage and her trust in God. And that's why in particular I think he talks about not giving way to fear. And this is the final word that God has for wives, fear, in verse 6. You are her daughters if you do what is right, and so do not give way to fear. I take it here that the fear that Peter is speaking of is the fear that women might have in submitting to a man who is far from perfect. It's similar to the fear that we might have in submitting to an unjust or unpredictable government. Or to the fate of, of slaves, the fear that they might have in submitting to a hard master... Because those that we submit to are sinners. And so there was always a risk and always a cost in submission. And this reminds us, of course, of how how wonderful it is to submit to Jesus. Because when we submit to Jesus, it's wonderfully liberating, it's wonderfully joyful, because there is no risk in submitting to Jesus. There is no cost in submitting to Jesus. But every other submission we make to a human authority does carry a risk and carry a cost. Whether it is governing rulers or bosses at work or husbands or even leaders in a church. They are not Jesus. They will not always get it right. There is risk and with risk comes fear. And Peter's instructions for wives here is not to give way to that fear. Uh, He doesn't tell them not to fear. I think that's helpful. I think it's helpful that he acknowledges that the fear is real. But he urges wives not to be overcome by it, not to be ruled by it, not to be defined by it. And it seems to me that the power of an emotion like fear, and given how much fear-mongering there is in relation to submission from many voices in our society today, I wonder whether this last phrase in verse 6 might not be perhaps the most important one for wives today. The most important phrase in the whole paragraph, the fear of submitting is real. And we do live in a society that tells us that we have a lot to be afraid of in submitting. And yet Peter urges wives not to give into it, not to let their hearts or their behaviour be, be driven by fear. Uh, Peter, of course, I think is talking about the normal fears that many would have, women would have about submission, about giving up power, both in submission and even in speech and, and in beauty and in dress. It's talking about the fear of entrusting yourself to an authority of someone who loves you but will make mistakes. And he urges wives not to give away to those fears. But I don't think that Peter is talking about a different sort of fear. I don't think Peter is talking about the kind of woman who fears for her safety, for either herself or for her children. I don't think we're talking at this point about a woman who is scared of her husband because of abuse. I don't think Peter is saying that a woman like that should not listen to her fears. I think she should. I think she should be encouraged and helped to find safety in such circumstances. I don't think that's what Peter is talking about. But what he is saying to all wives is that they ought to put their trust in God. Because that was Sarah's secret. She entrusted herself to God. God who is trustworthy. God who never makes mistakes. God who never gets things wrong. A God with whom trust poses no risk whatsoever. 
a God who is powerful but without sin. And if you read the story of Sarah, that's exactly what she did. She entrusted herself to God, even as she submitted to a very fallible husband. And she could have been ruled by fear, but instead her heart was ruled by a contented confidence in God. And with that, Peter finishes what he has to say to wives, and he moves on to husbands in verse 7. And the injustice of devoting six verses to wives and one verse to husbands is not lost on me. Uh, Perhaps one verse is all that Peter felt that the men could cope with, that might be the answer. But really, what he has to say to husbands, it's the same principle at work. In the same way as Jesus, husbands are invited to know the power of not using power, to know the power that they have been given, but not to use it to domineer or to rule, but instead, in a way, to submit themselves to their wives, or at least to submit themselves to what their wives are like. Uh, That is, to be considerate and respectful of their wives. Those are the words that Peter has for husbands. And so verse 7, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Peter is asking husbands to think very carefully about their wives uh, and who they are and and what they need. Literally, he's asking that husbands ought to live with their wives in an understanding way, to live with them with knowledge, to know them. And actually, that's why there is only one verse here to husbands. Because actually Peter expects that the husbands have been listening very carefully to everything that he has said in verses 1 to 6 to wives. Peter expects the husbands to know and to remember and to deeply understand everything that he has said about wives, to know how fearful it is for a wife to submit herself to an imperfect husband. In fact, it's not wrong to say that this passage is actually six verses to wives and seven to husbands. Peter is asking husbands once again to understand the power of not using their power, of not using their power just to act or or just to make decisions, but instead to make sure that they have first understood what is best for their wives and how they can love them. He's asking Christian husbands to know their wives. It's It's an extraordinary thing, actually. Nowhere in the Bible are wives commanded to know their husbands. Perhaps that's just taken for granted. But husbands are commanded to know their wives. And he doesn't just mean know their birthday or, you know, know which high school they went to or can you, can you reel off the list of your wife's cousin's names. May 27, Bomaderry High School and even Bond needs half an hour and a piece of paper to list all of her cousins. I can't do it. But no, instead, Peter means that we are to know our wives so much that we we ought to know how they felt about what happened today. Uh, That we ought to know what they long for and and, and what they need. Uh, What it would look like to serve them. What it would look like to put their interests before our own. And the thing is about this kind of selflessness is that it's no good just to guess. It's no good to assume that we know our wives. The Christian husband needs to be a really good listener, a kind of husband who's really good at at drawing their wife into a conversation where they do feel safe, our wives do feel safe to to share and and to be open and to talk about their 
their struggles and their fears and their hurts, as well as their joys and their dreams. And so often that is actually what our wives want from us. You know what, you know what the most important words in a marriage are? Now, when Bon and I do marriage prep with couples, we often talk about the most important words in a marriage. What are the most important words in a marriage? They're not, I love you. They're not the most important words. The most important words in marriage are, how was your day? How was your day? It's that daily connection. It's that coming together each and every day to hear one another, to listen to one another, for husbands to listen to their wives, to know them. That's, they're the most important words in a marriage. And we listen in order to learn and we learn in order to love. That's what Peter's talking about here. And so I have a little challenge for all the husbands in the room tonight. And that is, why don't you go home and actually ask your wives to give you an honest assessment of how well you listen. An honest assessment of how considerate you are as a husband. Because if you are serious about obeying God's word here, then that would be a pretty good place to start. Now, I'm really sorry I've outed you in front of your wives. Not really. But... You know, I dare you to take that step. I urge you to it, even as I kind of psych myself up to it as well. Because the beginning of godly consideration is careful learning and you can't learn without listening. And you often can't listen without asking. Now, of course, the second part of this consideration is respect. Husbands are also commanded to respect their wives and in particular to respect their weakness to respect their, their lack of power. And here, Peter is almost certainly, I think, talking about physical weakness. And whilst, of course, I'm recognising that the, the weaker partner phrase in, in verse 7 is grating to so many people's ears, I do think it's still a largely uncontroversial proposition that, generally speaking, women are physically weaker than men. And I do think that's what Peter is talking about here. I don't think he's particularly trying to say anything offensive. I just think he's trying to make the point that, you know, if a husband and wife were to arm wrestle, then generally speaking, the husband is the odds-on favourite to win. And that there is a good reason why women's tennis is to three and men's is to five. But even if Peter is thinking about a different kind of weakness here in this passage, the point is still the same. The husband must not take advantage of his wife's weakness must never take advantage of his wife's weakness in any way. But instead, he must respect it. He must submit himself to that that reality of his wife. Uh, That is, he must not use his strength, he must not use his power to capitalise on her vulnerability in any way. And if I'm right, and Peter uses this phrase, weaker partner here, to mean a physical weakness, then this verse makes it unfathomable and inexcusable that a husband would ever use his strength to dominate his wife, either physically or sexually or emotionally or in any other way. The Bible never uses the phrase domestic violence, but I have no hesitation in saying that this is a verse about domestic violence and the message is clear. It is not what God wants. Now, this might also be a verse about a great many other things as well. For example, I think this verse has implications for how anyone uses power and strength in any context. 
in a workplace, in a church, in a relationship between parents and children, and even how a wife treats her husband. There's never a godly justification for someone who follows Jesus Christ to use their power to take advantage of another and to capitalise on their vulnerability. But this is clearly a verse to husbands. Never use your strength to take advantage of your wife, whatever it might be. Never exploit your wife's vulnerability. God says you must never do that. And if you do, you must not just say sorry, you must repent. And repentance means something more than just sorrow. It means radical and it means permanent change. And so if you find yourself guilty of such a failure of love and respect, then you do, I think, need to confess it to God, to your wife, but almost certainly to a trusted brother as well, someone who can help you repent and hold you to account for changed behaviour. And if you're a wife here today and you find that you've been on the receiving end of treatment like this, you should raise the alarm. You are not required to suffer in silence. Submission does not mean an agreement to be abused and God does not expect that of you. And the best thing that you can do for both of you, no matter what your husband might say, is to put up your hand and tell someone that you need help. Again, a trusted brother and sister who can help you and will act with sensitivity and love. And just in case husbands do need any extra reasons for respecting their wives' weakness and and, uh, taking this command seriously, Peter gives two more in verse 7. The first one is that our Christian wives are heirs with us of the gracious gift of life. That's what Peter makes clear. That is, they are our equals under God. The gospel of Jesus treats us all the same. And that alone should tell us that any understanding of of any of these verses that we've talked about tonight that somehow comes to the conclusion that a husband and wife are of different value or are of different status is a wrong understanding of these verses. Peter explicitly says that the opposite is true. We are all heirs together of the gracious gift of life. And so we should respect weakness and treat our wives accordingly because not only are they entrusted to us, they are precious to God. And then the second reason he gives is for, for obedience in this is that other, to this command is right there at the end of verse 7 that it prevents our prayers from being hindered. Now, I'm not exactly sure what a lack of respect for our wives might lead to somehow a hindering of our prayer lives, but I certainly know that I don't want my prayer life to be hindered. And so whatever it means, it doesn't matter. It's just another reason to take Peter's word about respect very seriously indeed. And so ends Peter's words to husbands. And we need to finish up. So much has been said. And so much more could be said. And so please do ask questions. Do come and talk to me. Do uh, talk to others about these things. But let me very, very briefly conclude. Because as I said at the start of today, uh, many in the world around us hate these verses. They win no popularity contests. But I want to finish by saying, actually, we should love them. We should love these verses and what they have to say. 
We should love them because in a passage that seems to strip women of their power, actually we've seen that it's a power, it's a passage that speaks for the protection of women and their care. We should love them because they liberate us from a worldly view of power that, that sees people using strength just to get their own way and instead shows us the way of Jesus Christ, the power of, of not using power. And we should love them because they remind us instead to esteem the unfading beauty that exists inside people and especially inside those who've learned love and submission from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But ultimately we should love these verses because they are what they are. They are God's word to us, given for the health and flourishing of our relationships given to us because God knows better than us the best way to live, given to us out of his love and for the sake of our love, given to us in wisdom for our good because he is good and because his words are more precious than life itself, given because God knows how we should use power and how to use power when we do have it. And thus, the answer to all of these questions, the answer to all of our wrestles and, and all of our, our, our things is, is almost always the same thing. It's always follow the example of Jesus Christ who submitted himself because he trusted his Father. And so let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are challenging words today. But Lord, help us to love them. Help us to accept them. Help us to see the wisdom and the goodness of them. And above all, help us to do them. In Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Let's sing.